This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Tomorrow at City Council, uh, there's a lot of things on the docket. I think it's the first City Council meeting of the new year, so they've loaded it up. It's got everything on the docket, including, by the way, thankfully, this is not what we're going to talk about, but thankfully, tomorrow, barring some bizarre thing we don't expect. Tomorrow, finally, Russ Jackson will officially, great Canadian football player, great Hamiltonian, will finally have his own field named after him. It's taken a while, but that's on the agenda. But also on the agenda, what we are going to talk about today is the idea that perhaps we should have Spectra, the group that runs First Ontario Centre and First Ontario Concert Centre and all the other places in town, all the other entertainment facilities, maybe we should have them manage Tim Horton's field for non-football events. Maybe we should, and this is what they're going to propose, this is what's coming forward, start a pilot project to see if putting them in charge of Tim Horton's field, again, not for football stuff, that's the Ticats, putting them in charge of finding concerts, finding other things, maybe we can start to get more and more things being done at that stadium, more public uses for it. Well, joining me to discuss this, Jason Farr, Ward 2 Counselor. Sir, thank you for doing this today. Uh, no problem. Your producer, uh, Scott, said that uh, we have two segments here. Is that correct? That is correct. So then let me open by just just changing the subject just a little bit, because sure. you mentioned it in your preamble. Yes, and what a preamble, nightly, Scott. <laughs> but hey, I, you're I the expert. You're... You did that for a lot of years, so I take that as a compliment, even if it is sarcastic. Uh, no, 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 no. You get the setup. You get the trivia question for that. You get it all. Anyway, and, and a great personality, but I'm not pandering. Uh, we're going to have a good discussion anyway tonight, and I don't think it's anything too controversial, all things considered. But uh, I, I think your listeners should know that on the Russ Jackson file, you have more than just talked about it on your radio program or written about it many times in your spectator column. You have actively engaged on this. And I know you don't, when you, I hear you talk about it on your radio show, and I've read your columns, but you don't give yourself any credit for that. And if I'm going to pander to open, I might as well uh, pander in the best possible way because you, 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 you actually attended our meetings, and not as a reporter, but as, well, partly as a reporter, but also as an advocate for the idea. And you've had it for many years, and I'm glad you're happy. Well, I'm, listen, it's not about me, honestly. I mean, and I'm not saying that to be uh, real nice. This is It's time for Russ Jackson to have something honoring him in this city, and I'm glad, honestly, Jason, that it is being done while he is still physically and mentally healthy enough to enjoy this. So that's um, ultimately that's what it's all about. It's about him and about the city getting, you know, we, we need these things in our city so that people remember the heroes. And it's not for everybody, but for the great heroes of our city, we need these things. Absolutely. So I just wanted to say that, no, I appreciate you know, that. We, we heard you and we appreciated your advocacy for sure. Let us get to this thing because when I um, when I was remembering the whole talks about the stadium and even as the stadium was being built, I recall hearing, and maybe I misheard, maybe I misremember, but I remember hearing that there were going to be several concerts here. This was going to be a football stadium, yes. It was a Pan Am soccer stadium, but this was also going to be a place that we were going to have concerts and other huge events. We were going to make use of the building a lot. And then we had Keith Urban right off the bat. And as I recall, we had, I think, Billy Talent last year, last summer, there was a Billy Talent concert. But I think that's it. What's happened to the whole idea of concerts all the time at the stadium? Uh, no, there may have been one or two others, okay. maybe a little bit smaller, but you're you're bang on. And, and you're right. Uh, part of the discussion as well was a couple of great cups within 10 years. And that quite uh, hasn't come to fruition yet. 
regardless of that, um, you know, uh, I, I give uh, credit to the Hamilton Tiger Cats, the two shows you mentioned. They had a big uh, role in uh, producing and bringing forward uh, the second one with Billy Talent and that uh, very special many hours, actually, that day with uh, acts in addition to Billy Talent. Uh, they worked uh, collectively with Supercrawl Productions, and that, for all accounts, was a great uh, program as well. I, I didn't get to it, but uh, you're right. I mean, we had anticipated not only thousands of community hours for community use. and which, ha- which Sorry to interrupt, but that has happened. There have yes. been 1,100, I think, hours this yes. year of use. Now, most of it minor, uh, minor soccer and adult soccer, but nonetheless, it's, it has been used. Yes, and community meetings and events right. and so forth. But 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 what? In addition to that, you're right. It was a major concert venue, and a lot of us, including yourself, obviously, were excited about that. So this report says, you know, we 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 took the approach over the first full year, really, uh, by putting in a contract city employee uh, to do those bookings. And um, tomorrow we're going to run a pilot. We're going to suggest anyway in this report. Uh, at the General Issues Committee later on in the meeting, too, so it'll probably uh, be uh, news later on in the afternoon, that it uh, might be worth looking at a pilot for 11 months, allowing our current big show operators in town, Spectra, formerly Global Spectrum, uh, to, to give them that opportunity to see what they can pull off. And, and then the report speaks to what we as taxpayers may uh, receive more than just um, an influx of fine entertainment uh, in an arena, uh, sorry, uh, in a stadium setting, uh, but also uh, on the bottom line, a, a benefit of uh, savings of about thirty-five thousand for that contract employee, and a net gain, according to the report, approximately of forty-four k. And if we wanted to extend it, if the pilot is successful, uh, Spectra is projecting about one hundred and fifty-five k for twenty nineteen. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting about a proposal that is coming up at Council tomorrow that would bring Spectra, the group that covers, that that runs First Ontario Centre, would bring them in to oversee, essentially, Tim Horton's field. Not for football, but for other events. And potentially, they say, in this first year of doing this, in the pilot project, add three mid to large size events. It'll be a good start. Uh, Jason Farr, Councillor Ward three Ward two, joins. Pardon me, uh, joins me now. And Jason, this seems though to make an awful lot of sense. If you have Spectra, which is one of the largest entertainment and facility management groups in the world, that brings in and, and handles concerts and bands all the time, it makes a lot of sense to say, why don't you see if you can bring some in to do this? Uh, absolutely, and, and uh, you know they've proven themselves uh, fairly uh, well. I would suggest not. Perfect at First Ontario Centre, uh, but they're still somewhat in their infancy. Four years of a five-year uh, deal with the option on a five-year renew that would come before council. Uh, I haven't heard a lot of uh, complaints with respect to uh, my colleagues, the mayor, and uh, the constituency as to the performance as uh, promoters, as managers of big concerts and, and hockey and everything else that goes on at First Ontario Centre in those four years. Um, it, you know, save and except for the odd comments of, boy, it'd be great to get you too, or, or <laughs> you know, specific to certain acts. The, the reality is, and you touched on it, that they are one of the biggest in the world and that the contacts are there, the pedigree, the expertise, it's all there. And so for a pilot, uh, given that they're already uh, in town on a five-month deal, the 11 months is part of their five-month contract. We just 
add a venue to that contract, I guess, although it is apart from that particular contract. They're here if they want to do it, quite clearly, as the report indicates. And uh, since they don't expire in terms of the first of the uh, the five-year deal until December 31st, 2017, uh, I, I personally have no problem with this. I don't generally come on the radio or talk to reporters about how I'm, I'm going to position my vote prior to uh, uh, the actual debate at council, because you never know what might pop up. But this is literally a, a three-pager um, um, at, uh, as part of a busy GIC that I don't see a lot of downsides to. Saving except for maybe, Scott, the odd other spectra out there might catch wind and say, well, why can't we do an 11-month pilot, even maybe even a local promoter? But um, I, I think there's a valid argument. There's enough valid arguments to offset that for just 11 months. Well, something else about this that's really interesting, and you touched on it when you mentioned U2. People like to have the big bands here. They like to have the big acts. And certainly over the years, there have been that. And over the last number of months, we've also heard talk about, is it time to start looking at a new arena for the city of Hamilton? And the the one knock, I think, that has been put against the idea, uh, besides cost, of course, is, yeah, but if we do that, if we build a smaller 6,000 or 7,000 seat arena, we won't be able to get Garth Brooks or we won't be able to get you 2 or whomever else. This, it sounds, could at least potentially open the door to being able to do both. If you now have a 25,000-seat venue, you could handle the big, big concerts. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's always been there. And for many, uh, uh, maybe a whole generation or more, I guess since the uh, Pink Floyd debacle, which you know, many of your <laughs> listeners probably remember the story, uh, since that uh, we haven't contemplated or considered the stadium as a major concert venue. Uh, there it is, albeit twisted counterclockwise or clockwise, I can't remember, in the same space and with the new uh, Pan Am Stadium came a whole lot of talk as you mentioned as well up the top uh, about bringing more large concerts to uh, this venue and not a whole heck of a lot of pushback in fact a whole lot of celebration that those large venues would be large concerts would be coming back to this particular venue so I think there's a different attitude now I think there's an expectation that we have more and that's what this addresses with the three to uh, three mid to large size events, and I, they're certainly capable. My guess is they've already got two of the three uh, wrapped up. They're just waiting on our approval for a pilot. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that's the case because it's one thing to talk about a net gain to the taxpayers of 44k in that 11 month pilot that's being pitched tomorrow. Uh, but it can't be achieved unless those three uh, mid to large size events occur. Well, I, I just I, I'm imagining a couple summers ago, if this had been available or if this had been thought of you could have put Paul McCartney in there. I mean, as an example, it's just, and, and you have true. a lot more people and, and it's the perfect. he was at FOC. You're right. That's you're true. Right. But you now suddenly you are able to get an extra five or six or 7,000 people in and more revenue and more people to see it. And it seems like it's the perfect kind of place for that kind of event. All right. We only have a minute or so left here, but you mentioned Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd is one of the great bands of all time, but in Hamilton, it conjures up some, uh, as you mentioned, some, <laughs> some memories for people. What about neighbors in this case? I mean, have there been, there's only been, as you say, the two, maybe three concerts there. When Keith Urban was there, when there were others, were there complaints or are we in a different time? And as long as people don't actually basically burn the city down, it's all cool. Well, you know, I'm probably the wrong counselor to ask. Green would be your guy on that. But I, I don't recall personally, I heard nothing uh, but but comments about how happy people were that all of this came back. I would guess, though, in all, all reality, 
uh, being that, uh, you know, it had been decades since, and there are many generations of families still living in that area, that there were one or two complaints. I don't know uh, to, the, to what extent. Certainly uh, nothing of any great consequence came back in terms of public uh, uh, problems with the Keith Urban show or the Billy Talent show. And the Billy Talent show was essentially a punk rock day and night. Yeah, no. If there was going to be, well, it was it was a little smaller than Pink Floyd. How many people were at Pink Floyd? Like thirty five thousand, right? Something, Something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah. It may have been the biggest show ever in Hamilton. And, um, and if then anyone, the lawns went from green to yellow afterwards. <laughs> anyone who got to let you go, but anyone who does not know what we're talking about, I advise you go online, type in Pink Floyd Iverwin. Um, your eyes will be opened. Were you at that concert, by the way? No, 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 sir. No, no. I heard all about it. Though. <laughs> were you? Uh, no. No, I can claim absolute innocence, but um, there are a few people listening who probably were and oh, who have sure. uh, sporadic or uh, mixed memories of that event. But uh, we all, are out of, all fond memories. All fond, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> Councillor Jason Farr, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Good night, Scott. That is uh, that will be up at City Council tomorrow. Watch for that. Whether we should now be having more and more and more concerts at Tim Hortons Field. I'm for the idea. I don't know what the neighbors think. We'll see what City Council thinks tomorrow evening. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. So you've heard the story by now. I want to switch tack here. You, you've heard the story by now about this case in Toronto. Well, it's not really a case, I guess, because nothing actually happened. But you heard the story about this young girl, young Muslim girl, who reported that while she was walking to school, some guy came up behind her with scissors and twice cut her hijab. And if you haven't heard this story, I don't know where you've been because it's, it's, it's been everywhere. But this, of course, caused a massive response. This was a, a, a huge story because it falls into every category of everything that people don't want to think know about or believe about or think that we do in Canada. It was racist and it was Islamophobic and it was all these kind of things. And the, they had a press conference and the police investigated. Well, the police eventually, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, came out and announced, you know, we've done our investigation. This isn't true. This, is, this just isn't true. This did not happen. And the response to this has been very interesting because there have been a number of people who have, well, a lot of people have reacted in a lot of different ways, and as you can imagine. But one of the ones, and I want to just talk about this for a minute or two, because one of the things that I read today was a column in the Globe and Mail. And essentially it said, yeah, this didn't happen, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it could have happened. I'm paraphrasing at this point. This is not the writer's words. We know that there are people who are Islamophobes in our country. We know that people, some people don't like Muslims. We know this and we know that. And therefore, because it could have happened, presumably, or we believe it could have happened, we should not treat it as if it did happen, but have the compassion level and the, the reaction almost as if it did happen. Well, here's the problem I have with this. And I just want to touch on this because I find this a very troubling 
response. Not the idea that we should be compassionate to people who have a different faith, a different culture, a different race than us. That's not it. I think we have, we should all be compassionate and kind and nice and understanding and tolerant to people who are different from us. That's not the issue here. And I have, by the way, I have great sympathy as well in a lot of ways for this young girl. She was 11 years old. She told a story that quickly, because of how inflammatory it was, and I don't think she quite understood, I'm I'm very confident that she didn't or couldn't comprehend how inflammatory this was so that this story quickly, quickly, quickly got out of control. That's, that's, there's no doubt about that. But I think the idea of just saying, well, because it could have happened, we should carry on as if almost with our belief, you know, don't, don't think that it probably doesn't happen all the time. And therefore we should have immediately believed this girl. See, here's where things get tricky for me. Here's where things get tricky for me in this particular case, because we are in a time where it's not just this story that is dominating headlines. We are also in a time when hashtag me too, the me too movement is dominating headlines with many, many, many women putting on social media accusations about sexual misbehavior by men. And these men who were there, some of them no doubt have done terrible things. We are, nobody's, nobody's suggesting that all the guys are innocent. But what we have right now is a situation in this country, a situation in this world where we have seemingly, at least on social media, at least in that sphere, abandoned any pretense whatsoever of trial or presumption of innocence or anything like that. You throw the person's name up on social media and the pack mentality moves in and it's a a, a social media lynch mob essentially and that person is destroyed. And as I say, some people with the behaviors that they have perpetrated over the years, it's hard to suggest they don't deserve it. But it is also a, an uncomfortable thing in a society like ours that has been built on the presumption of innocence to simply say, this is, this is totally fine. This is totally okay. We're having trial by social media now, not trial by any other method, with no ability by someone who is accused of something to defend himself. And again, in many of these cases, they may be indefensible, but we still should be allowing people to offer a defense. Now, i got to take a break, but we're going to continue with this because I, the two things... The story about the hijab and the story about Me Too, they do tie in together in a way about how we should be treating these things. We're going to pick up on this right after this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. The story about the hijab, that turns out it's not really a story about a hijab in Toronto and how this ties into a lot of other things that are going on in our society right now and why it's a cautionary tale. And the issue again if you're just jumping in, is not that, to go to the Me Too movement for a second, is not that the women who are making these 
who are telling these stories on social media are necessarily or even possibly making things up. We don't know. We don't know. We are take we are we can only take their word and for many people that has been enough. For many people that has been enough. We've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of largely mostly famous men be accused of stuff which they may have done, possibly have done. We don't really know again because all we have right now is a trial by social media with no way to defend, with no way to offer a defense. This right now, this story is to me a perfect example of why we shouldn't immediately believe everything that somebody says or puts on social media, why we have to use our discretion and why we still need to have a presumption of innocence. Even if that seems like it's an unpopular thing to say right now because someone will say, well, you're you're defending the rapists or whatever the phrase is. You're, you're hurting the women. You're not believing the women. It's not about not believing. It's about us in our country, in our society. We have a presumption of innocence. And this particular example, again, to me, only reiterates why we have to be vigilant and diligent in making sure that we don't simply see something written down and draw conclusions and be willing to ruin someone without anything to back it up. In many of these cases that we've seen online with the hashtag MeToo movement, there is evidence that is also being provided. There's at least something that says, yes, you know what? Here's how I can show you that this happened. I was here at the same time. At least I was there. At least I can give you something to show that this was a, that I have a legitimate claim to this. And many of these celebrities, many of the Hollywood celebrities have been caught because they have done these things. And when it's been brought forward that there is evidence to support this, there is, we can at least make a judgment on that with something. But boy, it, this to me, again, the two things tie in. And now we have people saying, well, the fact that it could have happened, the story in Toronto, the fact that it could have happened makes us, should make us essentially carry on almost as if it did. Because it could have happened, we should expect this happens a lot. Therefore, we must not be too hard on this young girl. And I agree with that. I'm not looking, we, we don't need to ruin an 11-year-old girl. Again, I don't think that she had a clue of the firestorm that she was igniting. I really don't. She's an 11-year-old girl. That's imagine yourself back at being 11 years old. You don't really understand how the world completely works. You don't really understand that when you say some of these things what is going to happen as a result of it and what the response is going to be. But just because something could have happened doesn't mean we should be always assuming that well it's happened with other people, therefore it must be true. I think we need to apply the lesson of this to all things. We need to use our discretion and use our judgment and be fair, not be 
passing, not be allowing people to get away with, with bad behavior. That's not what I'm saying at all. Not allowing bad behavior to continue, but be fair and not be knee-jerk when it comes to seeing this stuff on social media or seeing this stuff as it's written down somewhere else. We need to vigorously decry these kind of false accusations, not only because they're unfair to the person who is accused, and in this case, it's a little bit different because we didn't really have an accused. It was a description of an accused, but not a person. But here's the other reason why. Even if you're on the side of those, and I think most people are, who would say we want to weed out this bad behavior and this Me Too movement and this social media movement is helping to do that, false accusations diminish the real ones because people now start saying, well, if that didn't happen, then it never happens. No, that's not true either. That's not the response to flip to the complete other side and say, because it didn't happen here, it never happens. What it means is we have to be more vigilant. We cannot simply believe something because somebody wrote it down. That's a start. That's a place that's in our society that has always been the place where the process starts. Someone makes an accusation, but it shouldn't be the end as well. It shouldn't be that we have trial by social media, execution by social media, career and personal crushing by social media. There has to be more to it than that. And again, it's an 11-year-old girl. I understand that this is a very difficult case, but this to me when I heard this was a perfect example of why we have to be more careful. We have to be very careful about how we're handling some of this stuff. Social media can be a great tool. It can also be a deadly weapon, and it's just a frightening thing. When you look at this story and you see that it was Apparently, according to the police, completely without merit, and yet everybody jumped on it like that and said this definitely happened. Why? Because it was said. We, we have to at least offer some kind of still, some kind of presumption of innocence for people. Because it gets to be a scary, scary place. And if you say, no, they don't deserve presumption of innocence, my answer to that would be, as I've said to everyone else, that's fine until it's your father or your brother or your husband. Then maybe we want presumption of innocence. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. You know what happened on the weekend in Hawaii? Honestly, one of the most horrifying traumatizing, frightening situations I could imagine. I mean, there are mistakes that people make. (laughs) Hitting the button that says there's an inbound ballistic missile about to land on top of you. I I, I honestly, I wasn't there, obviously. I can't imagine, though, the the terror. I, I don't know what other word you could possibly use. That there would have been in Hawaii. If you were sitting there by the pool and suddenly... Your phone lights up and it's got a text message saying inbound. What was the, the actual phrase? It was, um, well, here's exactly what it said. Sorry, I had it on my computer a second ago. A ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Yeah, that'll get your attention. And I've been reading today and yesterday and the day before all kinds of things, stories that talk to people from all over the world who were there about what they did. 
But here's what I want to know. We've got a few minutes left. In fact, less time than you would have had to prepare for an incoming ballistic missiles, just out of reference. What would you do if you suddenly found out, if that thing happened right now in here, and you found out that there was a ballistic missile about to land on Hamilton, what would you do with your last 10 minutes? I'd love to know if anyone has something creative. Because the, well, let me give you the numbers first. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers to call. If you had 10 minutes before you believed that the world was going to explode, or at least you were, your world was, what would you do? And what's really interesting about this for me is that I think a lot of people today might have a better answer than the folks did in Hawaii because the folks in Hawaii were not prepared for this at all. They had no expectation this was going to happen. And so they mostly reacted seemingly all the exact same way. They grabbed their prescriptions if they had some. They grabbed a thing of water and they headed somewhere in a basement or a storm sewers or wherever else to try and find some place that would possibly give them shelter. But that's because I think they never had any, any time to think about it. you. Every one of us now has had a few days. We've all heard this story. We've probably all given it some kind of thought. So what would happen if I had 10 minutes to live? What would you do? What would be your last thing? The obvious answer is again, for many people to do beyond grabbing water and medication or whatever else, many people's response in Hawaii was to immediately text, I love you or whatever to family members who of course were very puzzled because they had no idea why suddenly these text messages were showing up on their phone because they weren't aware that Hawaii was under imminent ballistic missile threat. Nonetheless, what would you do? If you had 10 minutes before a missile, I, I'm interested. I'm really interested to find out what people do. If anyone has something that they would, that they know that they've given any thought to since this happened, 905-645-3221. That's the landline or star 9900. What would you do if the missile was about to land on Hamilton? Frank joins me now. Frank, how are you tonight? Let me try again. Frank, how are you? There we go. Now I got you. How are you, Frank? Very. I'm just great. You always, you always bring up such um, uh, interesting, um, rather devastating topics. <laughs> well, this one would be for sure, but thank well, you, Frank. Not really. I, I, I just on your screener. You got me thinking here. And while everybody else scrambles for the lowest point they can, basements or anywhere for shelter, it, you know, based on timing, if I could get myself on a parachute, or I beg your pardon, I, I, I blew it there, a, a, a uh, put a parachute on me and go to the top of the CN Tower and wait for the bomb to hit. Everything's going to blow up and go up in the air, right? And it's all going to come down, including, in, including me sitting on the uh, upper perimeter of the uh, CN Tower with my parachute on. And uh, with, without sounding over-optimistic, I would be the first recovery man down below. Either that, or you would either that, or you would be the first person to be eviscerated. <laughs> I might have, I might land on Mars instead. <laughs> Listen, Frank, I appreciate the call. Thanks for that. It's a creative one for sure. I'd love to, as I say, I I think that a lot of people now. Frank has obviously given this some thought on the world of physics. That uh, how might he uh, survive this thing? I, I don't know exactly what I would do. I honestly don't know exactly. And and this is even with. Now, several days to think about this. 
But here's the funny part about this. I don't expect, I really, despite everything happening, despite all the posturing between Trump and Kim Jong-un and all this kind of stuff, I don't expect anything to happen. That said, you know what? It is something that over the next little while, I plan to have at least thought through to come up with some sort of plan. Because it may not be, it won't be, in all likelihood, a nuclear missile. But what if I have 10 minutes? What if I'm trapped somewhere? What if I... It's a really, really interesting one. It is kind of devastating. It is kind of depressing. I grant you. We don't want to think about that. We like to think, what would I do if I have been given, not that we like this idea either so much, a year to live? Well, I can do a lot in a year. What do I do in 10 minutes? You got no time to prepare. There's no bucket list. The time you had was roughly the time from when I started talking in this segment until right now. That's not a lot of time to do something. I can't finish a meal in that time more often than not. Send me an email. I'd love to hear. If you've got any good ones, I'll read them. Radley at 900CHML.com. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900CHML. A new report that is just out says fighting in hockey is basically, if it's not gone, it is certainly heading that way. In the NHL this year, only 17% of games had a single fight. Ten years ago, the number was more than double that, and back in the 70s and 80s, I don't need to tell you, I would guess the number would probably be double that again. Back in the 70s, if you had a game in the NHL that didn't have a fight, it would be a rarity. Now we're at 17%. Now, some of you are going to say this is a great thing. Some of you are going to say this is a bad thing. Well, let me bring in a guy who has been involved in this for a while. He's had a few tussles. Kyle Hagel is a Hamilton guy who played nine years of pro hockey, most of it in the American Hockey League. He threw his hand, threw some punches more than a few times. He is, he played as a tough guy in the league. But here's the interesting part. Kyle Hagel is not your typical tough guy that you would say, oh, okay, he's just a guy who punches people in the head. Kyle Hagel is a graduate of Princeton University. He is a seven-time recipient of his team's Man of the Year award and a winner of the league's Man of the Year trophy a couple years ago. And during his career, he founded the Stick to Reading program, encouraging kids to read. And on top of all of that, he went on Dragon's Den once upon a time and sold his invention to the investors. Uh, He is a very smart guy, in addition to being a guy who... Used his fists occasionally on the ice. Today, he's an assistant coach with the Seattle Thunderbirds of the Western Hockey League, and that is where we've caught up with him in Prince George, B.C., where he's got a game coming up tonight. Kyle Hagel, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, Scott. Thanks for the introduction. What do you think of, first, when you hear statistics and you hear stories that say that fighting is... Again, not obsolete, it's not extinct, but it's getting very, very close to being that. What, what's what's your reaction to that? Well, uh, you know, I think that fighting was on its way down um, anyways. With that, uh, you know, over the last couple of couple of years, over the last 10 years, it's there's kind of been a movement to, towards guys who are, are less specialized as just one-dimensional fighters. And, you know, I don't think that fighting will uh, ever completely disappear from hockey. I hope that it doesn't. I think most hockey fans would hope that it never completely disappears. And, you know, I don't think that it will. But, uh, you know, as far as guys who were employed to do specifically just that and play, you know, one or two shifts a night and just go out there and fight the other team's tough guys, 
I mean, a lot of those types of players have uh, gone by the wayside. And, you know, I think that uh, I think that part of it is is just based on general managers wanting to have guys on their team who can also be effective hockey players, and they just didn't have, you know, a roster spot for someone who is that one-dimensional. So, you know, you, you see guys who are leading the league and fighting majors this year, and a lot of them are really good players, like Tom Wilson in Washington or Zach Cassian in Edmonton, like, those guys are, are guys who have a lot of offensive upside and uh, can also, you know, when push comes to shove, they can fight too. It, it's interesting that you point this out because it really has been, a, again, not a death, but getting close to that by natural extinction. It hasn't been a rule that has banned hockey. It's just that the way the league has gone, if you can't skate or if you can't do anything on the ice with the puck, the game has changed so much that there's really not a place for you in the game anymore. Right, totally. And I think that there are there are maybe even some guys who would fit more of that traditional kind of heavyweight role, but even those guys are effective hockey players. Like, I mean, one guy who uh, who I got mixed up with once years ago in the American League who's probably, I mean, I'd say that he's the toughest guy in the NHL would be Ryan Reeves. And the, the defending Stanley Cup champions, Pittsburgh Penguins, went out and traded for that guy in the offseason because he's a valuable part of their team, and he's also a good hockey player i mean he can fork he's a, he can move around the ice he can be a really good four checker and uh you know effective in a lot of other ways besides just fighting so it when you say that you hope it doesn't go completely out what is the place for hockey in oh, for fighting in the game right now what if, if it's not just tough guys and it's not just i guess to drop the gloves right off the opening whistle to set the tone or like what is the what is the benefit of having it in the game still right now what does it bring I mean, I think that it brings an element of honor to hockey, uh, essentially. I I guess that's the short answer, is that it's, it's a game where if, if, you, if you do something that's deemed like, dishonorable, someone can come over and challenge you to settle that immediately. And you know, some people might think that that's pretty uh, archaic, that that you know that just two guys punching each other in the face bare knuckled is the best way to solve problems but i mean i don't know if you talk to hockey players and you talk to hockey people and hockey fans i think that they still love that we can just have that kind of that kind of primal element to our game and i think that's part of what makes hockey such a passionate sport well, one of the other things that has always been a case that every player that I've talked to who has played at a high level, there was always concerns that league disciplinarians never really, a lot of people felt this, never really got it. And so if there was a cheap shot, your suspension would not be really anything. Your The, the penalty that would be handed down to you would not be significant and Therefore, you know what, If we've got to police this ourselves. We've got to make sure that you know when you're on the ice, you better not do that, or you are going to have to face some sort of consequence. Is that still in place? Yeah, I think that that's definitely still in place. And I think that that would be one of the parts of the game that would be lost if you, if you took fighting out of it, if you made it so that you were suspended every single time that, that, uh, that you got into a fight. I think that it would just mean for less accountability among guys like and that would probably lead to more stick swinging and and stuff like that do you think that hockey at all and you're still involved you're you're now a junior hockey coach do you think the game do you think the people behind the game truly have been though kyle scared 
when they see some of the stuff that's happened with some former tough guys in hockey. Some of them have died. Some of them have died at their own hand, unfortunately. There are people who tell stories of, of difficult lives after that happened. Do you think this has been a scary thing for the people who run the game, honestly? A hundred percent. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that, that some of the changes that have been brought in have have been good. And I think that fighting has kind of, like you said, just naturally been on the decline because of because of some of those of some of those problems i mean i think that a lot of the guys who suffered from some of those uh you know like those chronic injuries like like Derek bugard those are a lot of those guys were those one-dimensional players and it's not necessarily that you know they just had no talent and they all that they could do was fight it's just that they they specialized right they specialized early they specialized in in fighting. There was a role for that, so then they focus in on improving that part of their game to the point where they get to be complete specialist in just that. And then it leads to you know it leads to one six foot five monster squaring off with another six foot five monster in a fight that seems to be completely irrelevant to the game. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of these guys have you know they racked up they racked up injuries. But I mean, yeah, is it is it a a concern of people in the game yes i think it is but i also don't i don't think that there's an i don't think that fighting is ever going to get back to that level where you had like the super heavyweight versus super heavyweight type fights i think that you know as you mentioned they it's just kind of tapered off towards where it's guys who are more normal sized and guys who are you know, just fighting out of passion more so than than a just a you know staged boxing match that's expected to happen just because just because there's one on each opposing roster. Do you ever worry? Because I mean, I don't know how many fights you had. I don't know if you know how many fights you had in hockey. But do you worry about any lingering effects? Yeah, totally. I mean, sometimes, and you know, my my wife does too. And, uh, you know, the head coach here in Seattle, he's a former teammate of mine, former Bulldog also, Matt Odette. And, uh, you know, sometimes, like, when we, uh, you know, we forget what city we're in or we forget what hotel room we're in when we're on the road, we just, you know, you know, say to each other out of jest, like, oh, sorry, man, I can't remember. It's just my CTE talking. And, uh, you know, we're half, half serious, half joking, mostly joking. But is there maybe going to be lingering effects later in life? I mean, yeah, perhaps, but that's the bed that I made, right? Like that was that was a choice that I made in order to in order to to play the game that I love. It was a it was a part of the role that I had to play, and yeah, I know I was in about 200 fights, and so you average it out that you take you know four or five four or five punches to the face per you know per fight. You know that, that adds up over the course of a of a of a career, and you know. Yeah, no, I I hope that I don't suffer from you know I don't suffer in the way that some of these uh, some of these guys who've recently retired and, and spoke out about the problems. Like I hope that nothing like that never happens to me. Like you know some of these terrible you know st- that you hear terrible stories you hear about, like from Steve Monador or you know uh, Rick Rippin or whatever guys like that. And I um, I hope that that's not the case. But what I can say is that I enter I entered into the I entered into it knowing that I was going to be hurt. So, and I just accepted that as part of my, part of my job. And that's that. 
There are stories. There's lots of stories. There are guys, I'm sure, Kyle, right now who are hockey players who it's probably easier for them to prepare for some of the games because they don't have the same role that you did and some of these other guys did. Knowing ahead of time, knowing when you're in the dressing room getting ready that you may or you probably will have to have a fight in a game. Was it hard for you? Were there times before a game when you were in the dressing room knowing you were probably going to have to fight someone that it was very difficult to get ready and to go out? Oh, totally. That's the worst part. Like, the the anxiety is worse than the fighting, for sure. Um, you know, it's losing sleep at your over your pregame nap. It's losing sleep the night before. Um, I mean, uh, you know, like, like my head coach here, Matt, and I, we say to each other now when we're stressed out before a big game and we need to win, sometimes we look at each other and think, you know what, we could also be sitting in the locker room right now with, uh, you know, our palms sweating and our forehead just leaking, thinking i got to go out and fight some six-foot-five maniacs. And it's a different type of stress. And, uh, no, that's, that is definitely the hardest part to deal with. And I think that as the role has changed, I think that there's less and less of those expected fights between two specialized guys. But 100%, that's the, that's the worst part of it. I mean, to, to give you any type of allegory that people who aren't hockey players could apply to their life, like just imagine being like a kid and you're a kid in seventh grade and – you know, you get into it with another kid over a, over you know a basketball game at recess, and it's like, hey, after school, we're gonna meet behind the portables, and it's on. Like we're gonna fight. And then for you to sit through the rest of your day at school, you know, you're not yourself. You're not really yourself when you're thinking about that fight that's gonna happen once the bell rings. And um, you know, that's something that a lot of guys, you know, who played this role had to deal with on a daily basis. And I think that that stress adds up and, and can contribute to mental illness and can contribute to, uh, you know, to bad lifestyle ch- choices just out of, uh, out of the stress of having to, having to deal with, you know, that fight that they, that they know is coming. And, um, but as we just have kept saying, I think that there's less and less of that. I think that the fights that are occurring in hockey today are more a product of just raw emotion boiling over or it's, uh, you know, standing up for a teammate when they have been, you know, there's been someone who's, you know, received a bad check or something like that. And uh, it's less about just these square offs that, that happen just because, you know, you think that your management expects them to happen and, you, and everyone in the arena expects them to happen. I think that the fights are starting in different ways these days. Just before you go, because I know you got to grab a team bus to get to the rink. Last thing, uh, if you had a son who was playing hockey and he got to the age where he might fight, what would you say to him now? Having been through it, what would you say to him? What would be your advice or your insights to him about if someone drills you in the corner or you go to your defense of your teammate, what would you tell him to do? I'd say that, number one, make sure that you protect yourself. And number two... Try to win because winning is a lot more fun than losing. <laughs> and um, I hope that that uh, I hope that that doesn't sound uh, idiotic. I hope that that doesn't sound um, you know that doesn't that doesn't sound like I'm a Neanderthal talking. But I would think that if I had a son, and 15 years from now or 16 years from now he's playing junior hockey, I don't think that 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 kid we'll be getting in 20 or 30 fights a year like how just like, like how I did when I was coming up in the era that I played in. 
I think that at the most, it's probably going to end up being five or six fights a year. And for the most part, they're going to be for the right reasons. They're going to be for standing up for a teammate or standing up for yourself, as opposed to just squaring off with someone because you think you have to. Kyle Hagel, Hamilton guy, his brother has played pro hockey as well. Uh, he is now coach of uh, assistant coach of the Seattle Thunderbirds, and we got to let him go because he has a game tonight. Kyle, listen, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this tonight. No problem. Thank you. Uh, interesting, interesting stuff. And and I think if you, well, I think you know a lot of people might have been actually surprised by that, the idea that just how much anxiety there is even for these guys who fight. And and Kyle's not. Here's the thing. Kyle is not an enormous human being. There are some guys who play that role who are big, big, big men. Kyle is a middleweight at best. And he fought a lot of big guys. You know, whether you want to call it courageous, because there's some people who think that the word courage should only be applied to certain things. And generally, I tend to agree with that. But that's a guy who fought some big, big boys. Whether you agree with them or whether you disagree with them, uh, he didn't back down from anybody. I think his story is fascinating. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.